0: Services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor.
1: This is the Retirement and IRA show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as Certified Financial Planner Jim Saulnier, as well as Colorado State University Finance Instructor and Certified Financial Planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401Ks, annuities, Social Security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim S.com, And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now, here's Jim and Chris with today's show.
2: Well, hello and welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show EDU edition for this week. This is uh, another show in line with our recent, we'll call it a series now because it's gone for a couple of shows. Uh, where we have asked people to share with us how they are maybe utilizing some of our approach to retirement plan planning and, and putting their own spin on it. Uh, things they like or dislike maybe about our approach and maybe they have um, used a modified version of it that they prefer and they're kind of sharing that with us. We're calling it the dialogue series, I guess. I'll, I'll name it that since that word has come up a lot. Um and so today we're going to look at a few more. We've been getting a lot of emails. They're really interesting to look through. I've seen a couple of them. Uh, most of them are going to Jim, so I haven't seen them all. But he's got a sampling of those today, and we're going to talk about those. And And maybe you can take some of your own ideas or some of some of your own uh, pieces of the show uh, and the approaches that you hear about and implement them into your own do-it-yourself retirement plans. I know there's a lot of do-it-yourselfers out there. I'll, I guess, address this to them for the most part. So, uh, Jim, if you're ready, you can uh, bring forth the next emails in our dialogue series.
3: <laughs> bring them forth? Yes. <laughs> we have about three I want to kind of get through. I thought they're, they're three totally different approaches, and I thought that would be a good uh, way of looking at things. Some of the stuff that they do is similar. But they all have different approaches. They all have different thoughts about us. One doesn't mm. like you at all. Mm. Um, spells your name wrong, but do not like you at all. And um, we'll get—I'm
2: oh, sure we're going to go over that one, right? <laughs> <laughs> Re-
3: repeatedly. No, actually, it's not as bad as I'm making it sound. He he started off liking us, and then ended up not liking you. Loves me. <laughs> Just needs to learn how to spell. I can't wait to hear this one. But anyways, um, they all take different approaches to how they're doing things. So let's begin with uh, just random. I'm going to choose this one because it's at the top of my pile. I printed these folks. Mm. Rather than doing them through my email, I... You can hear it. Paper.
2: Gone back to the old, old style. Went
3: back to the old style today. Figured I am going to go to paper on this. So this has been proven to be a very popular series. I hope our listeners find it popular, where people are just kind of, as Chris was saying, sharing their thoughts, their ideas of how they approach retirement. Um, I just I just wanted to create a dialogue with everyone. I think this series is running its course. I don't know if it's going to be renewed for a further season. But um, I think we'll probably do it one more time, and that's it. There's many, many emails that I don't think we'll get to, but I will try to do occasionally on a and a show. And there's some people, even though it was tied to the whole dialogue series, their questions, Chris, pertain more towards the fun number or calculating the fun number or minimum dignity floor. And we can pull those into a general Q&A show in the future mm-hmm. but there are some people who did share with us uh, their approach and uh, maybe we'll will uh, wrap this up one more show and then move on to other topics and just revisit this occasionally uh, mm-hmm. over the coming months. And, and that's how I'm leaning towards doing it. Okay. You don't want to beat the horse to death. People will just start getting fed up with this topic and say, okay, let's move on to something else. Plus, I keep getting nasty grams from the Ed Slot group to do my, my test that was due over a month ago. So I'm going to do that, and our next edu show after we wrap up this this dialogue series uh will be the 20 questions that uh i have to do and i think most of them are going to be on secure two. and you you enjoyed that last time you did pretty good i think you got most of the questions right so we'll do that again where i will ask the ed slot question give the answers listeners at home can try to guess the answers chris will guess the answer and we'll see who's right okay sounds good okay So this came in. Um, He did give a hint. Oh, it's an interesting hint. He's got a um, a double hint for you. I think you're Mm. going to nail both. Where he is now and where he's going to retire to. These these are super easy hints. Currently, I live in the country which recently left the European Union. Mm -hmm. However... I am a longtime resident of and will be returning to the Golden State.
2: Oh, those are fairly, fairly straightforward. So, the UK, you recently left the EU, and he's heading to California
3: in retirement. I think so as well. He didn't give the answers. Oh. But well, I would assume it. that is correct. It's uh, got to be it. <laughs> I just assumed, I didn't go, oh, wait a minute, no, he did say uh, London, England and Mm -hmm. california perfect okay all righty so folks he just kind of shares a little bit of what he's doing for him and his wife his approach to retirement planning what he borrowed from us and what he's done on his own and how he does it and why he does it i just thought it'd be good dialogue which is what this is uh, to chat about so he begins chris i'm 61 years old and i've been retired 18 months minus a 16-month consulting period I did in the middle of that. I enjoyed your EDU introduction episode on retirement planning, and I have a couple of thoughts that I want to share for dialogue and discussion. And he begins, My thoughts on the asset under management model of the industry. This worked well for me during my accumulation phase as I was much too busy earning money and raising a family and living my life to properly assess where my investments were and if they should be moved or rebalanced. I was disciplined enough to keep money being paid into my retirement accounts that someone else managed, but I was not disciplined enough that if I were managing my money myself, not to get distracted by watercolor tips and shiny investment objects and opportunities. I think I'm better off financially now by using this retirement savings plan approach. So that was his first take, Mm -hmm. kind of different than my opinion. I've often said that I think in the accumulation phase, which this man talks about, you don't necessarily need To be paying an investment advisor, especially a percentage of your income. And for many people, until you can amass usually a half million to a million or more and maybe start to hit break points, many people with a hundred, two hundred, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars pay substantially more than one percentage points of those assets per year in fees. And I just felt and still feel to this day, and this is my opinion, and Chris Mm -hmm. can opine, but I just feel if you're an accumulation portfolio with absolutely no distributions coming out, and you're at least disciplined like this man was to save, he said there's no problem there. He saved. He constantly saved in his investments. He just hired someone to do the management. Nowadays, especially with uh, target date funds, and I'm not saying they're a panacea fund, and I would not go into and through my retirement with a target date fund. But in the accumulation phase, especially, folks, for a gentleman like this gentleman or for people not like those of you who were listening to this podcast. If you're listening to this podcast, you're a VG, My affectionate term for a Vanguard engineer, whether you have your money at Vanguard or work as an engineer is immaterial. You manage your money yourself, the V pot and the G pot, the the VG, if you will. You may not be an engineer, but you have an engineer mind and it comes to investing or you wouldn't be listening to this. You are the anomaly. Most people don't give a damn about this, and couldn't pick out an ETF from a stock from a mutual fund if you held it up in front of them. So for them, a target date fund is very simple, straightforward, professionally managed, well allocated, well diversified, constantly rebalanced, and very low cost. Now, the one thing he never mentions during his accumulation years, remember he's 61 now, but during his accumulation years was what advice did he get from his advisor beyond asset management? Maybe his advisor did give sound financial planning advice over all those years as well. That that advisor just happened to charge for his or her advice, not as a flat fee like Chris and I do for advice, but instead say, hey, I'm going to take some of your money every year and not only help you invest it, but I will answer and, and address all these other financial planning topics. Some advisors do that and some give very sound advice. Others don't do diddly squat. And they're taking one, one and a half, one and a quarter, 1.8, whatever it is they're taking from people. So he didn't elaborate if he got any of that. If you are an accumulation person, though, and you don't get into investing on your own, and you maybe don't like or don't have access to target date funds, Maybe paying an AUM fee for advice is good. And maybe that advisor is going to give you much more uh, advice than just asset management advice. But my only caveat is if you are paying for someone to give you investment advice and manage your money especially in an accumulation portfolio with only positive cash flows in other words money going in folks not negative cash flows money coming out make sure they benchmark themselves so they can show you or you could at least assess Are you getting something of value for what you're paying for? And if they are giving you investment advice and financial planning advice, don't be shy. Ask them for an itemized breakdown. What did I pay you? You should do this conversation in January. What did I pay you in dollars last year? For the entire year. I want to know. And can you please break that out. How much of those dollars went to. Financial planning. Non-investment related advice. And if you could. Can you give the specific. you know, Conversations or advice. Or tasks you worked on. And what percent of that fee. Went to my asset management. And then I wouldn't be shy. I would ask them. Hey, I told you I want a 60-40 moderate portfolio or a 80-20 moderately aggressive or 90-10 aggressive portfolio. Can you benchmark my performance, please, to an appropriate benchmark so we can chat together about performance so you can see, folks, if there's what the industry calls advisor alpha, Did you get any type of return adjusted for risk beyond what you could have got with just essentially a benchmark? I dumbed down the definition of alpha, but that's essentially what it means. Did your investment advisor provide a return greater than an arbitrary benchmark that at least mimics what? The advisor was supposed to be trying to do for you and alpha is a way for people to determine if their investment advisor is worth the fee maybe your advisor is well worth the fee that you are paying for their financial planning if they would just separate it out for you And maybe they're not doing too well on investments or the other way around. They're nailing investments, but they're also charging you X amount of dollars from your AUM fee for financial planning advice. And you think that advice stinks. Maybe then you could negotiate a fee. You could say, hey, you know what? Your financial planning advice, not too great. Can you subtract this out and just lower your AUM fee for the asset management service? Or maybe they're great on the financial planning and not too great on the asset management. And you could say, hey, can, can I just pay you this X amount of dollars every year that you're saying my AUM fee represents for financial planning? Can I pay you that every year for advice? I'm going to take my money and I'm going to put it in a target date fund, low cost, passively managed holding since it's just an accumulation portfolio and I'm saving this for retirement and this one fund is allocated, diversified, rebalanced, mimics my current risk tolerance, pretty much does everything for me at a fraction of your cost. And you're not really beating an index anyways. So I'm going to kind of put that off passively, but I have no problem paying you for your sound advice. Anyways, I kind of ran with that a little, Chris, but I think, too many people, not necessarily the VGs listening to this, because they wouldn't let themselves fall into this. but for a lot of people out there, they don't ask these kind of questions of their advisors. They just blindly pay an AUM fee, an uncapped AUM fee and never question what their 5,000, 8,000, 12,000, 15,000, 20,000, whatever it is annual fee is even going to. What says you?
2: Well, I'm kind of in your boat because I tend to be more of a uh, passive keep things simple guy, which is something most do-it-yourselfers can handle. But I could appreciate someone who doesn't even want to worry about that and they find value in having someone else doing it for them. I would just make sure that you aren't overpaying for you or overpaying for that um, and not to just – Hire someone and and pay an unquestioned fee. I'll even call it because I think people are hesitant to question the fees, but uh, don't don't sign up for that and and do it just because you think that's just the way it is. There's no alternatives because there's now more and more alternatives out there, and uh, you know even at some of the the, the large names they have some some um, asset management type services that are fairly basic, and because they're fairly basic. They're rather inexpensive compared to a more traditional uh, AOM um, house. So there's lots of options out there now. Um, just remember that, you know, those fees that you're paying, just like your returns compound over time, those fees compound over time. So that little bite they're taking out, you know, what what you, I guess, might interpret as a little bite that they're taking out of your portfolio it builds up, and people really underappreciate how how much the compounded effects of those bites out of your portfolio and those fees actually have on your ultimate balance in retirement, which is that money that's ultimately going to be part of your fund number, right? There, these bites. Uh, most people that have amassed decent uh, dollars, um, I guess I would envision it as. The advisor that's charged you fees over some 20 plus years hasn't really diminished your ability to cover the minimum dignity floor, but they have directly eaten into your fund number. Basically, you're giving them some of your fun in retirement in order to have those services and just make absolutely sure you're okay with that trade-off and that you value and appreciate what they're doing for the fee that they're charging. Different strokes for different folks and some people like a more active strategy that might is certainly more expensive to deploy. So I'm not saying there's not things that these advisors are doing that justify what they're doing. I just think a lot of people pay advisors who don't do things that justify and they're afraid to ask about it because they just think that's how things are and they just have to put up with it. That's not, that's not really no longer the case here in 2023, in my opinion. There's a lot of options there.
3: Right. And if you do have an active advisor, you should be asking him or her to benchmark. I don't want to go down that road anymore, but it's the only way you can assess if you have advisor alpha. Um, one quick thing that I want to allude to for this gentleman who rode in at 61. He's wicked old, folks. He's 61. I mean, when I, I'm 60, so it's different generation totally. But he's 61. When he was in his accumulation phase, Greg... You, I mean, Pete. Um, Pete. Pete's coming up even now. Pete, yeah. No. Hold on, Chris. <laughs> even in his accumulation phase, Chris, there weren't many options for him. Because you were saying, "Oh, there's there's people now who can who will negotiate fees. There's companies that will give cut down services for lower prices." They didn't exist. True. True. He's my age. I mean, I mm-hmm. grew up with him too. We didn't have that option. Mm-hmm. You had to pretty much go to an advisor to buy a stock, to buy a mutual fund, folks. Keep that in mind. And I mean, Schwab broke into it in the 90s. But in the 70s and 80s, well, 70s, he would have been teenage years. But in the 80s and uh, up through probably the mid-90s to early 2000s, You didn't have online services. You didn't have the ability to do a lot of this yourself. He had no choice but to pay someone, either a commission or an AUM fee or both. So he grew up in a different time. Okay. And I just want the listener to know I acknowledge that as well. So he continues. Now, however, I'm retired and I can really appreciate your comments this episode, this past episode about the weaknesses in the retirement spending plans of the industry. I have needed to create my own financial Apple Numbers model. So he's an Apple guy, not an Excel guy. I have needed to create my own financial Apple Numbers model to make myself more comfortable with what you call the fun money category. For example, it has helped me determine, should I buy an economy car or a luxury car? What if I install rooftop solar panels? Can I afford that? And can I afford the batteries too? I hope you can afford the batteries too. It kind of defeats the purpose of the rooftop solar panels. What about installing a level two electric vehicle charger? Am I upset when my wife wants to spend a small pile of our money on fixing minor issues at the house? Or should I be relaxed about it? In the back of my mind, I'm wondering if an AUM model has run its course and what our options are. I think we kind of answered that question already. listener. on what your options are. There's plenty of options out there. Has the AUM model run its course? Yes. Does the AUM model realize it? No. Will the industry let it go? Hell no. It is far too profitable far too scalable and profitable for the industry to let that model go. But there are, as Chris has said, more and more advisors similar to us, not following us, I don't know who the leader of the movement is, but advisors who are proactive in their thinking and realize the AUM model is a scam, It is not good for the individual. It's wonderful for the advisor and the advisory firm and everyone who's got their hands in the the pot, if you will. But it really doesn't help you, the individuals. You can look for advisors, not quote unquote fee only. AUM model, an uncapped AUM model is fee only. Screw them. Find an advisor who's going to charge you a financial planning fee and not require you to have them manage your money. And just pay them for their advice for all these questions you were asking rhetorically with your Apple numbers spreadsheet. Or pay them to sit and chat with you about your questions and what do they think and here's what I think, meaning you, here's what I think. Mr. Advisor, what do you think? There's advisors whose business model is like that. Now, Chris and I, our model isn't exactly like that. We don't sit and chat with people about things like that. But there are advisors who would. For all you do-it-yourselfers now who have your Excel spreadsheet or your Apple numbers, just look for an advisor who charges for financial planning or retirement planning in this particular case and advisors who will charge separately for managing assets. And if they charge separately for managing assets, you can look for ones who charge a AUM fee, or nowadays there's flat fees, there's subscription fees. They're not nearly as popular as AUM. And AUM still, I think, is 90, 95 plus percent of the way the industry charges. But there are advisors out there who will be able to answer questions that this listener proposed rhetorically, I'm sure, but also for anyone out there. There are advisors who will provide hourly advice. You just got to look for them. And recognize fee only does not simply mean, in my opinion, fair fees, because I don't think an uncapped AUM model is fair at all, that somebody with uh, a million dollars pays twice as much as someone with half a million dollars, even if both of them are are asking the same questions and pretty much taking about the same amount of time from their advisor. But one is paying twice as much as the other. And any true and honest advisor will tell you, under the AUM model, there's a, a s- subset of people, I've heard numbers banted around 20 to 30% of people, who are paying way, way, way more than any possible service they're getting from that advisor. But that advisor can use those dollars to offset the 10, 20, 30% of people who are sucking more time and effort from the advisor. And that's just unfair. The people who are sucking the time and effort should be paying more. And the why should other people, especially those with a million a million and a half two million or eight hundred thousand or whatever it is be essentially subsidizing the advisor clients who only have one two or three hundred thousand dollars with that advisor and that is a common thread in discussions that i see all the time in our industry and another reason why the AUM industry in my opinion is so unfair and why you can put a stop to it folks just by asking your AUM advisor to provide an itemized receipt not every quarter annually hey George the advisor it's January I just looked at my December 31st statement it says total advisory fees paid $10,700 making this number up folks $10,700 can you provide me an itemization of what I got for that $10,700? Just ask them to itemize it. Would you go to a hospital and on checkout you get handed a $10,700 bill and it just said you owe us $10,700? The government mandates hospitals gives itemized bills. They don't mandate our damn industry give an itemized bill. Would you go to a mechanic and you handed a bill for five thousand dollars. Well, what'd you do for this? All's what I had was a, a noise in the engine compartment. Well, we fixed it. You owe us five grand. You would refuse to pay that. You would say, "Give me an itemized bill, Chris." Why don't people demand that of our industry? Why don't regulators demand that in our industry? That was your cue. I'm to assuming say something. that's a rhetorical question. <laughs>
0: All right, let's move on. They've
2: convinced consumers that they're powerless in this. People just accept it, and it's just that is the way it's always been done. That's the way it's just done. Why question us? That's kind of the attitude I think of most in the industry. Um, And uh, I think everyone also, all the advisors that defend it – See themselves as providing so much value that they oh, we only have to we must be talking about someone else because we definitely deliver enough value to all of our clients. Then
3: itemize I'm it and not, just show it to I'm them. I'm telling
2: you, it's uh, uh, not necessarily the case. Yeah, you, know, you need to look yourself in the mirror
3: and and uh, you know
2: have some self reflection.
3: Again, to this day, folks, they mandate hospitals itemized bills. They don't mandate someone charging you. Mm-hmm. And we have seen it. We have seen people paying $20,000, $25,000, 30 $30,000 a year. Obviously, several million dollars of assets being managed. No itemization. No idea at all what the hell that $20,000, 30, dollars $30,000 went to. It's crazy. Okay, yeah. let's continue. My investment spending plan approach and my personal model... Has been first to model spending to age ninety. Wanted to know your opinion of ninety. Do you want to give his opinion now or later?
2: I think if you're using a, um, a a more traditional approach to planning, you need to extend that out beyond ninety. I think the the you know generally accepted age of mortality for most of these projections is now ninety five plus we are approach as actually less sensitive to that um worry because of our dedication to covering your minimum dignity floor with secure income and if you've got a plan that's been put together like that then your age of mortality becomes very inconsequential uh for coverage of the most important expenses um whether you live to 90 95 100 105 what have you uh if you're comfortable knowing that the at least the minimum dignity floor is is protected to the best of our ability to project it right there's always unknowns out there like you know what inflation will actually be we have to acknowledge you know there's there's no way to perfectly predict it but um if you've got nice secure income coming in protecting the most important expenses for yourself the age of mortality on the projections i think is a little bit less important to worry about Um, because even, you know, if you are still kicking at 90, 95, a hundred, the fun is likely not a big dollar amount for you at that point. So knowing that the, the more, um, consequential part of your overall expenses every year, the minimum dignity floor that's being dealt with and longevity risk really isn't much of a question in, in, in that regard when you're using secure income. So it depends on your approach. If you're not using the secure income approach to address the longevity issue, then I think you need to be running projections farther out than 90. That's that's my opinion.
3: Okay, he continues. I mm-hmm. put my spending in brackets mm-hmm. of necessary expenses, and for this I mean housing, medical, clothing, insurance, transportation, and taxes. I would say that's his version of what we call the minimum dignity floor, food, mm-hmm. utilities, transportation, housing, and health care. I would question clothing. That's the only thing I'm saying i'm not if it works for him by all means listener do it but we put clothing in desired or fund spending if you will discretionary dollars you don't have to buy a new pair of pants or a new sweater but you do have to pay for food utilities transportation housing and health care expenses i have seen insurance as part of Minimum dignity flaws, for lack of a better term, um, I forget who it is. I think it's Blanchet is a big pusher of uh, insurance. Now he does work for Prudential, so that might be why. But uh, in, I believe it was him. I was watching a presentation by him, and in his uh, necessary spending or or non discretionary uh, expense category, insurance was listed as well. Uh, we do treat insurance. As part of our minimum dignity floor, but homeowners insurance is covered under homeowners. Medical is covered under health care. Long-term care is generally covered under its own category, but we will put that as minimum dignity floor. Once you have an insurance policy, we feel it must be covered. We just don't separate it out into its own category. But I'm fine with the way he breaks it out. He calls it Mm -hmm. necessary expenses, Uh, My only one would be clothing. But if for him that's necessary, we've had people tell us about pets. We put pets under desired expenses. I'm a dog lover. I no longer have my pups. They both passed away. Mosby and Corbett died. I will have a new dog in the future. I just found out, Chris, they have a chessy Doodle. I could have the best of both worlds, the cute little fuzzy mm-hmm. curly haired dog that makes everyone go, oh, so cute. No, they're
2: not cute. They're not, they're not breeding a Chessie with a miniature poodle. They're, treated, they're They're breeding a Chessie with a standard poodle, which is the size of a Chessie. Just FYI.
3: Don't, don't burst my bubble <laughs> on a Chessie doodle. <laughs> I love Chessies, folks. Chesapeake Bay Retrievers. Love them. I want to get another one. It's just not time. Anyways, we have Mm -hmm. had people where we put pets under desire and say, absolutely not. It is required minimum dignity floor item for me. Mm -hmm. And we'll put it in there. Mm -hmm. If someone told us clothing is an absolute must for minimum dignity floor, we would put it in there. So far, so good.
2: Yeah, I would say that um, I get the point that having zero budget completely for clothing throughout a 20, 30 year retirement as part of your minimum dignity floor is going to sound strange to people. I think for us, basic clothing that you might need if you ran out of assets, because remember, that's the goal with the minimum dignity floor is to identify how much secure income you might need to cover expenses if you ran out of assets, um, having some clothing maintenance and repair and, and replacement, um, does make sense, but we have kind of a catch-all category called, um, basic hygiene and personal care that has enough in it to buy, you know, enough replacement clothes. Underwear. Yeah. You know, little things like that to maintain your wardrobe, if you will, not buying new clothes to freshen up and be. You know, whatever the trend is that 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 kind of stuff is definitely not built into our standard minimum dignity floor. But as you mentioned, anybody can come to us and say something is so important that I want to consider it minimum dignity floor. And we're OK with that. We just remind them what you're asking us to do is include an expense that you want to make sure you cover, even if you ran out of assets. So if you tell me you're going to spend eight thousand dollars a year on clothing, even if you have no assets at all, and that's where you're living at this point. Uh, If the answer to that is yes, that's minimum dignity floor, and we're going to stick it in there. Usually when I phrase it like that, people think, well, maybe let's put $1,000 a year, you know, 500, some basic amount in the minimum dignity floor, and then the rest we will make desired. That's usually how
3: that conversation goes. Okay. So he continues. Next, I have flexible. And for that, I have gifts, traveling, dining, entertainment, charity, as well as my buffer. So he has another category, almost what we call fun, mm-hmm. because gifting is fun. We've we, we, get, we have got a few questions recently on where do we put these types of expenses? Fun number is essentially, folks, if you break it down, if you stop and think about it, It's your discretionary expenses that remain after food, utilities, transportation, housing, health care, guaranteed inheritance, aging, and long-term care, and buffer have been addressed. What the hell is left to spend money on? Discretionary items. We call it fun number, but gifting while you're alive is fun, or people wouldn't do it. You find pleasure in helping children or charities or, or loved ones. By giving them some of your wealth and watching what they'll do with it. So his what he calls flexible is what we would call fun. Travel, dining, and entertainment. Minimum dignity floor is food. And that's essentially what you go to the grocery store or nowadays have delivered to your house from the grocery store. Dining out, that's an experience. You're, you're, you're paying substantially more than that plate of food is worth. And that is discretionary. You don't have to go drop $100, $200 on, on a dinner out with, with your family. But you do have to drop 20 bucks at a grocery store to feed dinner for your family that night. So there's a difference. So I have no problem. And then he put car purchases and charity um, under flex excuse me he put I'm sorry cop purchases in his next category but charity and a buffer Um, we don't generally put the buffer in the fun number itself but if we didn't have a buffer category Chris those dollars would bleed into the fun and we were just talking about a certain client today don't mention anything but during our group meeting and i was remarking to the group that we if if these dollars aren't enough he may have to pull from his fund reduce it and push them into this reserve position that he has if we redetermine he needs more to which you rightly pointed out well if he doesn't want to spend from his fund for that he can take from his buffer so this gentleman just Kind of seemed to acknowledge that that wow the, the buffer is really fun by a different name that's just being reserved for an emergency because if the buffer wasn't there and you need money it's got to come from your fund it's got to come from the non dis, excuse me from the discretionary expenses that you could cut. So I have no problem with the way he's breaking this out so far. It's working for him. I think that's great. And then he says, and I created another category, one-offs, and that's for my home remodels, extra travel, weddings in the future, future car purchases, and gifts to charity. What do you think of his one-off category,
2: I think it's, in my mind, that would just be a subcategory of the discretionary pool. Um, but he, he clearly wants visibility of it. So he has this separated category. There's nothing wrong with that by any means, but I don't, I, I don't know that it's truly completely a separate independent category. It's all those things that were listed, I
3: believe sounded like discretionary choices. Um, the one thing that I noticed, Chris, Under his necessary category, Mm -hmm. he has transportation expenses. Mm -hmm. Under his one-offs, he has a car purchase. I just want to clarify that in our approach, Mm -hmm. in our minimum dignity floor, which is food, utilities, transportation, in food, utilities... Transportation, housing, and housing. Yeah, I have them all. Mm-hmm. Um, our transportation category includes the maintenance, upkeep, and replacement of one vehicle. So that's built into our minimum dignity floor. If he is saying here in this one-off, car purchase might be a second or third vehicle, I support it wholeheartedly not being in his necessary category. But if he means car purchases that, hey, I'm going to have to replace my car every eight or 10 years, I forget how often Chris built into our model how often a car gets replaced but all of that has been built into our minimum dignity floor it's been spread out the payments have been smoothed if you will it's not that all of a sudden one year eight years into the future or 10 years whatever the time frame is on replacing vehicles there's this massive fifty thousand dollar purchase it's just that we smoothed out using AAA software the cost and maintenance of a vehicle over the life of that vehicle and we build that including future car purchase payments into our minimum dignity floor estimates so that was the only thing jumping out at me and for all of you doing this on your own Uh, A second, third, fourth car, yes, fully agree. It is a discretionary expense. It can be in the quote-unquote one-off category. But if by car purchases you mean the one car that you need all the time, that should be in your necessary category as part of your own transportation subcategory that you told us um, fill in your necessary bucket. Any thoughts on that? Are ready to move on.
2: I think we can move on.
3: Okay. All right. I assume my next three years of spending is fairly accurate, and I fund it by reserving money in cash-style holdings. Absolutely no problem with that. Very similar to the way we approach positioning. He's just saying, he then takes all these categories— He's got three of them, again, necessary, flexible, and one-off, looks at the expenses that he feels from each category he's going to need to cover over the next three years and puts it in cash-like holdings. I have no problem with that. Mm -hmm. Capisce with you? Yeah. From years three to five, I feel I'm starting to get less accurate in my estimates and the money that I will need to conserve for it, but I will put it in equities and bonds. I'm okay with that. He's starting to take a little more risk if he's comfortable with it. Well, it
2: depends it. on how much equities.
3: True. I was just ready to say that. <laughs> okay. Three years is not that big of a buffer, mm-hmm. if you will. And again, we we got away from using three simple buckets of money, which is what this gentleman has done, as you'll see in a minute. And we use positions. And we might have a half dozen to seven, eight, nine different positions. And each position has its own investment mandate based on the risk capacity of when that spending is anticipated to be needed. So we do something a little bit different. But he has a more traditional what the industry calls bucketing approach or time segmented investing. He's simply saying, folks, money that I need over the next three years is in cash. From year three to five is in equities and bonds. And then he says, beyond five years, I'm aggressive in investing and risk. And it's appealing um, to Markowitz to expect higher returns here. What are your thoughts to this approach? Five years and beyond is not what I would call long term. Yeah. So I would be careful because you are still, go- you're young, you Sixty one. You're young. Trust me, I'm 60. I can say you're young. We still have hopefully 20, 30 years left. That's more longish term. Five years is not long-term in the investing world. If someone 25 years old walked into a... Now, we wouldn't necessarily work with them, but if they did walk in and say, Hey, guys, I want to work with you. I've got $500,000 here to buy a house in Colorado in five years. What should I do with it? Stocks are not going to be the first thing I'm thinking of. Mm -mm. He needs this money in five years. I might look and say, well, gee, housing prices in Colorado have gone up on average. I don't know what it is. Let's just say 5%. I'm making that up. But if it was 5%, I would say 5%. You can get a five-year CD pretty much keeping pace with Colorado home inflation. Maybe you should just put it in that so it's liquid in there for you. You can't afford if the markets fall five years from now, you might be down 20% and no way near ready to buy your half million dollar home. I just don't think, listener, your three buckets of one to three and then three to five and five plus gives you a lot of protection from sequence of return risk and emotional Risk. If you're looking at your five year bucket and it's down substantially because you're predominantly equities, you might in your mind justify not spending as much on fun. Well, I don't. I don't have to do that this year. I'm going to do it next year or the year after. And you might come up with a reason why. Oh, the the weather doesn't look too good. I don't want to go on that cruise. Or who wants to go elk hunting in, in Alaska? Oh, there'll be moose hunting if I go to Alaska. I don't need to go moose hunting in Alaska. It's cold. I don't want to go. I'll find a reason to justify it maybe. But the true reason behind the scenes in my mind was, holy moly. My five-year pool of money is down 23%. I can't spend this money. And to me, that's as big a failure and a big a risk as outliving your money and not having anything. Our time, I've entered, so have you listening. You're not far away yourself, Chris. We're entered. I'm into my last third of life. We know this. We're not getting younger, stronger, and healthier. And I hope at 60, I can say 10 years from now, I'm still going to be doing this, that, and the other thing. But I just don't know anymore. I don't like it. It's frustrating. It sucks getting old. My back hurts. I'm sore in the morning. It's just, it's. I'm not having fun until I get up and at them. And I know I'd said this to my girlfriend the other morning. It's not going to get any better. I know my days of doing the activities that I like to do are numbered. I don't want any retiree at 60 to have to put off having fun. Because emotionally they freaked out because of a five-year pool is down a lot. So I, I just don't think you have enough space in those time segments. If you're going to take a time segmented approach, that's my opinion. What are yours, Chris?
2: I do think that uh, I tend to favor uh, separation or protection from equity volatility for your spending more in the eight to 10 year total, not of cash, but, you know, the two to three years worth of cash and then four to eight to 10 years, uh, you know, of, of other protection uh, gives people the peace of mind and gets them closer to that i'm only putting at risk my longer term money if we can push it out to that 10 year and beyond uh phase so that's my preference but you know you're I mean, there's, everyone can do kind of their own thing as long as they go at it eyes wide open and are aware of the trade-offs. Your example about the person, you know, wanting to buy a house in Colorado in five years. I totally get what you're saying. And you and I would, would likely not, uh, put, put dollars at risk in such a short time horizon. But if someone was willing to say, you know what? I, I really would rather buy a more expensive house. So I would like to invest this in a way where it could go up more uh, than than 5% potentially, and I'm willing to, if things go down and I'm down 20%, either accept a $400,000 equivalent house or um, um, delay my home purchase. If I was willing to accept and deal with the downside, you could make an argument for investing in a way that gives you the potential upside. You just need to do it eyes wide open and realize the trade-offs that you're making.
3: I agree with that, but a 25-year-old who might have to delay one or two years, yeah. chances are they will have that extra time. Right. A 61-year-old that a yes. who might have to delay mm-hmm. you know, five years in, he can't do and he has to go even longer, that pushes him to 68, 69, 70, and we just don't know, folks. Remember, right. it's always going to happen to someone else. I get that. It's never going to happen to you, but there is the other guy, and the other guy is out there, and someday... Like it or not, you will be the other guy. Everyone will be the other guy. Okay, he continues. On the guaranteed income side for dignity floor, my wife would like guaranteed income for all our spending. I'm more comfortable with guaranteed income just for my necessary expenses, and I would rather use a managed risk approach for other expenses. How do the two of you help spouses overcome and manage this conversation? Mm-hmm. I'll let you handle that one. Oh
2: thanks. Um well there's no no magic solution. This is the communication and, and compromise situation. Um maybe there's one thing I have seen is um a spouse like the wife in this particular case, that's looking for more guarantees or assurances on the cash flow, but the husband is, is clearly not for covering all the expenses that way. Um If you were willing to have a reserve that you could point to your, you could say, Hey, you know, here, I, I, I understand your concern. I prefer not to do that. Would you feel okay if we did it with, you know, protections or income covering our minimum dignity floor, what we call it. Uh, But then let's spend from this fund number pool. But for assurances for you, I will, you know, set aside this buffer or reserve that is uh, there for the just in case. Would that make you feel comfortable enough to approach it this way? Maybe something like that. Um, I've seen work, but it's not everybody sees just even if you've lived with each other for a very long period of time, not everyone sees retirement the same way and has the same concerns, worries, fears, goals, um, priorities, all those things and it's it's a it's a dance, it's a negotiation just like everything else in your marriage has been. If you're, you know, it's, if you've been married for a while, that's that's kind of how life has been. It's no different once you enter into retirement, you're going to have to figure out a way to find an approach that works for the two of you.
3: Yeah, listener, it's what I've been sharing. You and your wife are on the seesaw. She wants the promise. You want permission. Don't lose sight of that, folks. Retirement planning is a promise for your permission. Your promise for your permission. You are going to promise the older you they will have enough money for their minimum dignity floor of food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care. Or in this case, listener, your wife wants the promise that what you call necessary expenses, housing, medical, clothing, insurance, transportation, and taxes will be covered. That's what your wife wants. She wants a promise. She's on one side of the seesaw. You're on the other side of the seesaw. You are advocating for the younger you. She's advocating for the older you. We typically see this with couples. You are advocating for permission. You want permission, but permission from who? Permission from the older you to go ahead and spend on fun. So the two of you need the approach you're taking. You don't have to follow our approach. and you, You're mirroring what we do. It's not verbatim. But you got to sit her down and get her to understand that anything you do to help her go up with that promise that there's going to be more secure income is going to hurt you or the you plural, not just you personally. It's going to hurt the younger you or yous, both of you, as we would say back east. It would help the two of you go down. Why? Because you're going to take dollars that you could be spending now and you're going to be putting them into more secure income sources or more investments or reserves or something for the older you. So the two of you have to get that seesaw to balance on that metal bar. And that's what retirement planning is it's the metal bar. Promise for permission. I think you simply need to show her that, hun. We are going to put a plan in place where our necessary expenses that you categorize of housing, medical, clothing, insurance, rentation, and taxes hunt. Those are taken care of with lifetime guaranteed income sources. You didn't get into what you use for that, but whatever your lifetime guaranteed income sources are, these are taken care of, hon, no matter how long we live, we're going to monitor this annually. It's not a set it and forget it. If we need to put more money in there, we will, but right now we have that taken care of. And then you can make a decision. You don't get into your your, uh, analysis at all of where aging and long-term care expenses are falling. You don't really get into that. So you need to then address that, in my opinion, with her and eventually kind of walk through our fun number approach with her. But once I think she sees that what you guys categorize as your necessary expenses is protected... You can explain to her that it's not necessary for us to protect with income all these other expenses and get her to understand she doesn't want to force herself for fun to have to live by a set budget of income that comes in every year because the time to spend on fun is limited truly spend on on fun things that you want to do the gifting that you alluded to the charitable donations that you mentioned those can be done at any time throughout your retirement go-go phase slow go phase or no go phase but your go-go phase for fun i think those days are numbered and you don't want to limit yourself to oh well we we only get $30,000 a year for funds, so we have to wait two and a half years to go on that $75,000 dollars round the world cruise. You don't want to be in that situation because you don't know in two and a half years if both of you will be here or if you'll be able to do it. So maybe if you show her the explicit promises in place to take care of what you guys call necessary expenses will make her feel more comfortable saying, okay, I get it. We don't have to annuitize everything. You've got our necessary expenses covered and we're going to watch it every year. So yes, the other dollars can be managed in the way you prefer to with Harry Markowitz and investing and time segmentation. And maybe you guys approach it that way. It's a negotiation. It's a seesaw ride. But really, Chris, it's promise for permission, what I've been saying all along. Mm-hmm. So he continues, and he's we kind of addressed it already as he wraps up. He says, my final question, you constantly describe the fun bucket in terms of spending money on myself and my spouse. And that's fair enough. And honestly, that's where most of it is going to go. But knowing you can make a bigger difference in a charitable cause or in a child's life, what about taking more of those expenses, which he calls one-off, and using it now to help people learn and go to school? Mm -hmm. While you are alive, you have control over what impact these dollars have. I think another term for your fun bucket should be the impact bucket. Where do you want to have the biggest impact before you pop your clogs? And he says, that's a Britishism for dying. Pop your clogs. Listener, we fully support what you just said there. Mm -hmm. Um, To us again, what we call the fun number. Fun is different things to different people. I have two clients, one who sadly passed away, another who is alive. Fun for them was giving to charities constantly. I think they like the attention the charities give them. But giving to charity was how they spent a lot of their quote-unquote fun money. It's whatever you feel is fun. And if sending a child to education and watching them learn or paying for someone's wedding gives you joy, that's just as fun as going on a cruise. It doesn't have to be a cruise or travel. It can be gifting. We always encourage our clients. Why wait for someone to die to get your money? If you truly don't need and you have to have a good analysis in place, because once it's gifted, once it's gone, you can't get it back. So that's why a lot of inheritances are received at death as an inheritance and not during life as a gift. But if you are blessed in the sense where you truly do have excess dollars and you can't conceivably need them, then yes, absolutely give it during life. That's my thoughts.
2: Yeah. And I, when people bring up these things, I generally say, well, the fun number or fun budget is our playful description for what you should view as a purely discretionary pool of funds for you to do with as you please. That doesn't roll off the tongue as easily as fun budget or fun number. Um, but that's really what the fun number is, is it's the purely discretionary pool of funds that's available or left over after all of your other priority items have been addressed to your satisfaction. And if you want to give all that away or some portion of it away or none of it away, that's at your discretion. And, um, you know, some people might not think of that as fun, but that's kind of the context in which we're using that that word.
3: Okay, perfect. Do we have time to get into the emails that we still have or uh, not?
2: Probably not another email. If we have anything else we need to type about this one, that would be fine. But, but uh, we don't have time to start a new conversation. Okay,
3: well, I skipped over then something in his email. Then I might as well get back to it since we have a limited number of time. Going back to the conversation between him and his wife. Um, how did the two of you help spouses manage this conversation? Currently, our conversation is specifically focused on how much we should guarantee. If that's the case, in my opinion, listener, I think you have to concede and give to your wife, fully guarantee the category the two of you created and named necessary expenses. I think those expenses should be fully guaranteed with lifetime guaranteed secure income. So he continues, what is the mix for this guarantee between cash, bonds and annuities to fill it out? (sighs) To me, the mix should be, and people aren't going to like this, cash and bonds do not continue forever when they run out
2: yeah but if they're using that for just say the delay period or the period until they annuitize, I could see them fitting into a a timeline where we're only asking them to do their job for a fixed amount of time. That would make sense as far as predicting a long term need. Cash and bonds aren't going to do it i mean aren't going to put you in the secure position that we would like to see and i'm I'm deducing your wife would like to see. So it depends on how you're going to use those cash and bonds. If it's just for a delay approach until you annuitize later on with the intention of doing that for your longevity protection, um, that, that could make sense.
3: Okay, I'll concede that, and I agree totally, but I read it more from the standpoint that how much of our quote unquote guaranteed income should be in annuities, and how much should I be managing uh, through cash and bonds
2: well those that 's not guaranteed income then no, I agree with that,
3: you that's that 's my point, mm-hmm. listener. Chris is correct, and we talk about this all the time on our podcast we don 't believe in using annuities for what we call the delay period. Shortage. That's the period for minimum dignity floor. That's the period or what you call necessary expenses in your email listener. That's the period between retirement or where you are now at 61 and when your full retirement benefits have begun, um, which for most people is age 70 for Social Security, when you have all your secure income turned on. During that delay period, yes, you can. You, you know the, the assets, you know how much you're going to need, you know the end date, so you know the exact dollar amount, and you can divide that amongst stocks, excuse me, amongst cash and bonds. But if you're asking me for long-term minimum dignity floor, the explicit promise your wife is looking for, that her necessary expenses will be taken care of, no, cash and bonds are not an appropriate place for those dollars. Lifetime guaranteed secure income that will provide payments for as long as you or your wife live, no matter how long it is. Even if you have no assets left, those payments continue. Cash and bond reserves are a bond ladder designed to last a certain period of time is great. What if you live one day longer or a decade longer than that ladder? Not so great anymore. So I think for what you call necessary expenses and what we call minimum dignity floor expenses, it should fully be covered with pension, social security, An income annuity. You don't tell us much about any other sources of secure income you may or may not have. But he continues. He says, we recently decided against purchasing an Athene annuity. And he lists the Athene annuity. I won't name it. It's just a long, ridiculous name. Because we felt we were simply trading the volatility of the market for the volatility of Athene with far less flexibility. I will say, listener, um, I'm not a fan of private equity owned insurance companies like Athene for lifetime guaranteed income. I don't necessarily see an issue buying a MIGA or a short-term fixed-indexed annuity, which Athene is huge with. But I would have uh, an issue with that company. We've said this on the podcast before, especially after I started following... uh, two gentlemen who founded a a program for rating insurance companies called the TSR Ratio. Uh, They are not fans of Athene at all. They're not fans at all of what a lot of these private equity-owned insurance companies are doing uh, with their books and how they're cooking their books and passing off a lot of risk to reinsurers that are owned by Athene themselves and based overseas using uh, gap accounting instead of SAP accounting. And all the games, all the manipulation that these companies do, the engineering of their balance sheets is appalling. So I can't say you made the right decision, but it's a decision that I wouldn't lose any sleep over. But just because you chose not to use Athene for guaranteed lifetime income doesn't mean there are no other insurance companies with much stronger balance sheets who aren't doing the, the balance sheet engineering and the offshore reinsurance affiliates uh, and the, the gap accounting over SAP accounting games, you still should consider lifetime guaranteed secure income for some of your expenses. I think your necessary expenses uh, at least and provide that promise that your wife seems to need. Uh, Again, I have no problem with you not moving forward, but don't paint all annuities in a negative brush because of what private equity-owned insurance companies are doing. There's still a lot of mutual insurance companies that are well-managed, hundreds of years old, strong books, and they're not doing a lot of the engineering that these private equity and stock-based insurance companies are sadly now doing. The regulators are starting to wake up to this. The SEC just recently came out and said, you should not rely solely on the financial stra- uh, ratings of, of the ratings agencies, S&P, Moody's, things like that, pointing out the obvious. They were highly rating a lot of bank assets in 08, and look where that led So don't rely on just the ratings agencies. You should look at other metrics and measures. I just don't think you should paint the entire insurance industry as, oh my God, I'm not going to buy any risk pooling. I'm not going to pass longevity risk, which is an insurable risk. That's what an income annuity is. It's longevity insurance. I'm not going to pass the risk that I live so long I outlive my money or outlive my ability to manage my money. Or worse, listener, you die and your wife is now left trying to handle all this. You need to leave her and yourself if the older you does not have the financial wherewithal to manage assets anymore and make wise decisions you need to simplify some of your finances as well it doesn't sound to me as if your wife as into this as you are and she will appreciate the safety and security of a steady check but don't just say well Athene I did my research I don't like them I don't like the gamemanship that they're doing with their books um, I'm getting out of this Athene contract. Great, but don't say, and there's no other insurance company I would want to work with. There's many insurance companies out there and someday I will purchase an income annuity because I don't have enough guaranteed income and I won't lose sleep over it. I may not choose the company with the highest income benefit, but I will choose a company that I feel strongly will be here for the remaining 20, 25, 30 or so years that I will have left remaining when I purchase my income annuity. That's my two cents. Do you have Mm -hmm. anything to add?
2: No, no, I think that's, uh, I hope they're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater on the Athene decision. And you didn't share with me what annuity to Athene it was, but this was mostly concerns about Athene as a company. And this isn't picking on just Athene. This is, this is a kind of a consistent opinion with all of the, you know, private equity held insurance companies that are, uh, I think, exposing people to risks that they wouldn't with traditional insurance companies or mutual insurance companies for the most part. Not that there aren't poorly rated versions of those, but um, I think it's a concern worthy of of watching. And uh, but don't. You know, cast that same concern on all insurance companies across the board because they're not all created equal.
3: Right. And that's what I wanted to say. He was yeah. looking at folks a fixed index and I'll just tell the name, doesn't matter to me. Um, it was the Athene Ascent Pro 10 bonus annuity with income ride. I talk about a mouthful, huh?
2: Yeah, and that's not for for our purposes, for just plain old standard predictable income to cover your minimum dignity floor which is our approach we prefer more simple income annuities rather than any kind of indexed product i can tell
3: you chris this uh annuity just by the name Uh is complex the Uh bonus feature whenever you see bonus just use a different word bogus (laughs) i'm I'm, I'm totally serious because it's bogus Bonus is just a way. Insurance companies, especially private equity-owned insurance companies, aren't in business to give you a bonus. They're in business for one reason only, to make their shareholders a boatload of frickin' money. And that's one of the reasons they love the insurance industry. And they talk constantly to their shareholders and to the publicly traded companies that have adopted the same strategies. Uh, They talk openly about the, quote-unquote, stickiness of annuity money. Because they hold it for years and years and years, especially if you turn it into a lifetime income benefit. Bonus is just designed to the gullible to get you to think you're getting something for nothing. But if you actually read the disclosures associated with the bonuses, they do disclose in there, probably in eight-point font on page 57, but it'll be in there. That bonus annuities generally carry lower cap rates, lower participation rates, lower payouts.
2: Well, they've got to scrape the money somewhere. They've got from to somewhere. get the money
3: somewhere. Mm-hmm. So anyways, I just tell people, if you're being sold a bonus annuity, just substitute the word bogus and see if you still want to buy it. But what I'm just saying is this is an incredibly complex product. I'm going to think the 10 means the number of years. I'm totally guessing that the annuity is going to have the penalty phase. Bonus is bogus. Annuity with Income Rider is just another way of saying a very complex income benefit that may or may not be good i don't want to throw this product under the bus i don't know anything about it but it is a complex annuity it is not a simple straightforward single premium immediate annuity here's some money here's the income you're going to get for the rest of your life no matter how long you live pretty straightforward Mm -hmm. so again it's whatever feels best for you and and they help you're getting from the the agent, the insurance agent who's going to be putting you in this fixed indexed annuity uh, with an income rider and a bogus or, or bonus, whatever you want to call it. Um, maybe they, they truly have given you sound advice. They've explained everything. You have an understanding of it. It's great. It's going to work for you. The biggest thing I would say with Any annuity with these income riders, we'll have to do another whole show on what income rider is and how they work. That gives me an idea for future EDU. Make sure you are comparing not the potential illustrated amount of income you could get. You look at the guaranteed worst case scenario minimum amount of income you can get. Because there is never a guarantee on these products for anything else, no matter how that illustration runs. And by law, they have to show the last 10 years, the best 10 years, and the worst 10 years of owning it, what it would have paid. It's all meaningless. The last 10 years, past performance, no guarantee of what, Chris, future results. The best 10 years, same thing. The worst 10 years, same thing. Instead, just tell your agent, can you show me the worst case scenario? What's the minimum amount of income I'm going to walk away with? They all have a worst case scenario, these fixed index annuities with these riders. If that worst case scenario, Chris, is enough money to achieve what you want, then I agree. You can't get any worse than that. You could do better. Right. And maybe it's a good thing. But now you have to be comfortable with the insurance company. And will the insurance company be here in 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years? That's what you also have to look at. I don't know if this guy walked away. He did say he walked away because he felt he was replacing market risk with a theme risk. So I think he had some hesitancy on the company and he was looking more at company risk. So he might have said to himself, hey, this and maybe the minimum amount was enough. And maybe he said that, Jihan, the minimum we can get from this would cover what we need. It can only be better. But goodness, I worry about the company. That's the impression I got on why he walked away from that product. But um, I, I've made no uh, hesitancy to share my, my un what's the word I'm looking for? My unwillingness to commit to a private equity-owned insurance company and the rampant balance sheet engineering schemes they do
2: yeah with the current regulatory environment i think the concerns are valid a lot of this could be cleaned up and tightened up with
3: better regulations better regulations yeah
2: not that i'm you know regulations can't solve everything in the world but i think the pendulum has swung too far on the scary
3: side exactly for, they got to for bring this particular
2: back. circumstance. So, yes, this, and, I think it's totally worthy of additional regulation.
3: And Congress has started. Um, yeah. Tom Gober, the gentleman, one of the founders of TSR, testified before Congress, uh, and Athene and Tom have no love lost between the two of them, and they have argued in public writings repeatedly with Tom calling out Athene and Athene telling Tom he doesn't know what he's talking about. One of those two parties is right. Only time will tell. But... I have seen or I'm starting to learn of the engineering gimmicks they do on their balance sheet, and I'm very worried about private equity owned insurance companies. I feel much more comfortable with mutual owned insurance companies. Some people feel comfortable with fraternals. I'm hesitant because fraternals have no guarantee fund protections, but fraternals and mutuals, because they're nonprofits, tend to have much better balance sheets than private equity-owned and stock-based companies. So keep that in mind as you evaluate lifetime sources of income. Now, if your money is with Athene or any private equity-owned insurance company, I'm not saying run out and replace it. Oh, my God, they're going under, especially if you just have migas. Migas have been king lately. If you have a three-year, four-year, five-year MIGA, especially if the MIGA is under the guarantee account protection of your home state, I wouldn't panic. It's just I can't tell a listener or a client, let's buy an income stream for a company that, hell, I don't even know if they're going to be around in 30 years or 20 years. I, I just don't know. It's too much risk there. You you should be shopping, not necessarily for the highest income payout on a lifetime guaranteed income stream, a company that you can feel comfortable with. I think that should take more precedence to, oh, I can get $100 more a year, though, with this company or 50 bucks more a month or whatever it comes to. You might want to forego just the highest payout and look at the strength of the insurance company. And as the SEC just said a few weeks ago, don't just look at the ratings agencies. But regulators are starting to take notice of this. And you know what's causing it, Chris, isn't necessarily what we're talking about, private equity-owned insurance companies taking over, essentially, the fixed-indexed annuity business and these lifetime benefit riders, is that Athene has quietly become one of the biggest purchases of ERISA-protected pensions. Mm-hmm. And you're giving up ERISA protection and pension benefit guarantee corporation coverage and going to non-ERISA protected, no pension benefit guarantee coverage to a private equity owned insurance company. And the regulators are finally starting to say, wait a minute, that doesn't seem right. It's just that they, they move at the speed of cold molasses on a February day. In other words, not very fast. Yeah. Okay.
2: Okay. Perfect. Well, um, the other emails that you've gotten, are they worthy of extending this into another show? Or what absolutely.
3: You, what absolutely. Opinions? you got to okay. get to the guy who don't like you at all.
2: Well, well for sure.
3: Um, and Perfect. then there's another gentleman. There's a lot. I, I appreciate <laughs> everyone who has replied to us, but I'm afraid we're just going to bore the, the heck out of people. So we'll do one more of these and then we'll jump into the Ed Slot um, spring. So <laughs> we're about to do a fall training in three weeks. I think I got to get my spring test done before I, I get another nasty gram. No. So we'll do the Ed Slot uh, test after one more EDU on this topic. Perfect.
2: Okay. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Thanks also for sending in your your uh, emails on this dialogue about how you're kind of doing your own retirement planning and how it is similar or different from what uh, from what we propose. Uh, we really do appreciate it. We appreciate everybody listening. Uh, makes the show work, um, and uh, we'll be back next week with a brand new show.
1: You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now, you may wonder what sets Jim Saulnier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier and Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit JimHelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's Jim H E L P S dot com. Or call 970 530 0556
0: is offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor.